to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. It's going to be on page 997. Page 997 in the Pew Bibles. So your Bible open and something to write on and something to write with. You're going to be in good shape for today. Uh, It's no fun for us when it takes multiple failures of the same kind to learn a a single lesson. Uh, It was several years ago, several, several years ago, uh, my family and I were driving through Arkansas, and I got pulled over for speeding. Now, to be fair, you want to get out of Arkansas as quickly as possible. <laughs> it's a fundamental rule. Now, when you see Stephen McDonald, you know Pastor Stephen is from Arkansas, and so you might say, I can't wait to tell him what Cody said about Arkansas. But to my point, his address is Cohasset, so... You want to get out of Arkansas as quickly as possible. Uh, And that's what I was trying to do, but Arkansas Highway Patrol did not find my efforts too amusing, so they pulled me over and gave me a ticket. A few days later, back home in our town, I got pulled over again. Four days later. There are different levels of spousal anger. And you might think anger that erupts like that, you know, like a volcano, that's the peak level. It's not. I've seen the peak level of spousal anger. It's catatonic anger. It's no response, no words, just eyes and silence. And I've been there more than once. Uh, It's my fault every time. But I got two speeding tickets in the same week. That was horrible. My repeated failures taught me a valuable lesson about my driving habits. Something that makes the Gospel of Mark so fascinating, something that we've seen over and over in our study of this book, are the repeated failures of the disciples. Mark, as a writer, he's not so concerned with painting a a really rosy picture of the disciples in their journeys with Jesus. He lays it out very clearly and repeatedly airs out their failures, I think for the benefit of us, the readers. He consistently describes the disciples as failures. There's not that many bright spots for these guys. They consistently misunderstand Jesus, fear Jesus, doubt Jesus, and challenge Jesus Seldom do they ever just simply believe and trust as they ought to. And it might be difficult for you and I to be sympathetic towards the disciples because Jesus' identity at this point in Mark's gospel is hardly a secret. Like the one who controls nature, who dispatches demons, who raises the dead, oh, and and who feeds thousands of people with just a little bit of food, that one is the one What the disciples have seen and heard so far in the ministry of Jesus ought to be enough not to answer every question, but at least to secure their faith, to anchor their trust and hope in him. But they don't get it. So it can be easy for you and I to be critical of these guys. That's what I do. I I read their repeated failures. I think, man, these guys are so dense. How can they get it wrong time and time again? But when I compare myself to these Mark chapter 6 disciples. 
Those guys come out on top, and it's not by a little bit. You see, I've seen all their stories. And on top of that, I've seen the stories to come, and I've seen Jesus die on the cross, and I saw Jesus walk out of the tomb, and I saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and I'm indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And still, my faith is prone to fracture. My trust is at times weak. It can still be hard to believe and to follow in spite of everything we've seen and we've known. Doubts and fears, temptations and sin are ever present in our lives. So we shouldn't point fingers at the disciples in criticism. I am one of them, and so are you. I find that for modern disciples, our faith faces challenges in two broad categories. Here's where you and I often slip. We slip in sin or we slip because of situations. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't make us immune from temptation. For sure, it breaks us from the bondage, the power of sin, the penalty of sin. But we still are faced with temptation, and it can be sadly, terrifyingly easy for followers of Jesus to listen to temptation, to follow Satan's schemes, to step out of the lines of obedience and to pursue sin. That type of failure is common among people of God. We bow to temptation. We cultivate secret sin. Our righteousness is just a facade. But another thing that disciples of Christ struggle with, not just sin, but also situations that damage our faith, crises, difficult things, hard days, Disorient, dis, excuse me, disorientation in life can leave us questioning the goodness of God, the presence of God, even the reality of God. Look at all that I've been through, and then we draw conclusions about God based on the situations we faced. Damaged faith can show itself in attitudes like hopelessness and bitterness or fear. Life becomes a lament that we just we can't seem to break out of. The passage we're studying today has been used by Christians throughout the ages as a reminder of the power of the nearness of Jesus Christ. That power over sin, that power over critical situations, all these things that would draw us away or fracture our faith, this passage has infused strength into followers of Jesus for so many years. Today we're going to watch Jesus walk on water. And then we're going to see Jesus heal the sick. And when we witness those things, Jesus is calling us to trust our lives to him. To renew our efforts against sin. To engage our trust even though the situation is dire and we don't know the way through. Jesus who walks on water and heals the sick calls to us today to trust in him. So my goal today in the passage we're going to study is to lift your eyes from your sin or your crisis to set them firmly on Jesus so that either for the first time or for a new time, you would put your trust in him. I want to show you three ways Jesus helps disciples who are struggling in their faith. Now, when we were last in Mark a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw Jesus perform a feeding miracle. You remember this? He, he had more than 5,000 people listening to his teaching out in this remote area. He takes a few pieces of bread, a couple of pieces of fish, 
does this miracle and feeds all of these people. Way more than 5,000 people in this one sitting. Now, if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, what I said was that that miracle was not so much for the crowd. It really was more so for the disciples. As far as we can tell in that story, the disciples are the ones who see and witness and experience that miracle. Jesus is trying to help these guys in their weak faith, trying to convince them, to win them, to trust in him. So Jesus performs this miracle. He establishes himself as the messianic shepherd who cares for his people and protects them for all eternity. And it's at the end of that miracle that our passage picks up. So I want you to look at your Bibles with me. Mark chapter 6. And let's start reading in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. This is a passage for disciples of weak faith, hard hearts, those who are struggling. And it calls us to new trust this morning. Let me show you three ways Jesus helps us in our struggling faith. So it helps us, first of all, to know this. Jesus is God, the object of our faith. If you're taking notes, number one, Jesus is God, the object of our faith. Mark gives us such vivid details in his storytelling. He puts us right in the mix of it all with Jesus and the disciples. After the conclusion of the feeding miracle, Jesus makes his disciples get into a boat and sets them on a course for a town called Bethsaida. There seems to be a sense of urgency in this whole boat scene. It seems as if Jesus is pressing the disciples to get off of that hillside, to get into the boat and out onto the water. Now, Mark doesn't explain it, but it could be that in sending the disciples away and dismissing the crowd, Jesus is trying to quiet any sort of a miracle man fervor that might be boiling up in the crowd that evening. So Jesus sends the disciples away, he sends away the crowd, and then he goes up on the mountainside to pray. Now, Mark doesn't tell us in this instance what the content of Jesus' prayer is. But I have a guess as to what at least one part of it might have been. Just a guess on my part, so you feel free to take this and, and chunk it if it doesn't work. All of the episodes of chapter 6 serve to develop the faith 
of the disciples. So I think at this point, when Jesus is alone and goes up to pray, one of the things he prays for is for the protection and the understanding of his disciples. He wants these guys to endure. He wants them to make it through all the challenges they're facing, the challenges that are internal and the challenges that are external. And every part of chapter 6 has been an exercise in faith for these disciples where Jesus is rejected at Nazareth when he sends them out to go on their mission, the aftermath of the execution of John the Baptist, and this whole hillside scene where Jesus is feeding these thousands of people. The bullseye target is the faith of the disciples, that they would trust Jesus, they would believe, they would experience the provision of God in all these things. Here they stood on the hillside, dishing out the food, picking up the leftovers. Jesus is developing faith in these men. I think he prays for them that they would understand and that they would trust. Jesus has a vested interest in their faith in him. And so in this scene, as in others, I see Jesus orchestrating things so that faith is developed in them. I I don't think anything in this scene happens by accident or coincidence. Jesus knows what he's doing when he puts them in the boat. He knows what the forecast is uh, long before he sees them struggling at the oars in the middle of the sea. He knows what the wind's going to do. He knows the difficulty of the night. Just like the the big storm in chapter 4, Jesus knew what was happening. He's going to use every one of these situations to help develop the faith of these disciples. It's an important point for you and I to understand that sometimes Jesus doesn't just allow the hard thing, but he appoints the hard thing. It can be hard for us to make sense of that. Isn't he supposed to make life easier for us? Isn't he supposed to make life lighter for us? One of the great challenges, though, is coming to the understanding that we live for different goals than Jesus does. Our goals are to get through life with as few hardships as possible. But Jesus' goal is for us to get through life believing him, trusting him, loving him. So many times the hardships that we try to avoid are the very tools of God to teach us to trust him and to love him. It is his grace, not his negligence, not his fickleness, but his loving grace, his faithfulness to us that would put us in the hard day and put us in a place where we must rely on him and trust in his good, loving character. So Jesus looks out from the shore. He sees the disciples struggling at the oars because the wind's against them in a big way. They've been at it for a few hours. He put them in the boat in the evening, and Mark gives us a timestamp. He tells us that it's the fourth watch of the night. That's a figure of speech that belongs in a Roman context, not so much a Jewish context, certainly not a Protestant Baptist context, but fourth watch of the night means probably about three in the morning. These guys have been at it for a long time. They had to be exhausted, frustrated. This this wind and this storm, I don't think it's of the same variety as the chapter four storm. At the end of chapter four in that storm, the disciples thought they were about to die. We don't have anything like that in this episode. We just have frustration, annoyance, exhaustion as they can't beat the wind and get to the other side of the sea. So Jesus sees them struggling. Mark tells us about 3 a.m. Jesus went out to them walking on the water. Mark writes it so matter-of-factly. 
Like, it's just another thing. Jesus went to them walking on the lake. That's just what Jesus does. It's no big deal to Mark. He just throws it down there like you and I ought to say, well, of course Jesus walks on the water. Why wouldn't we be surprised at this? Of course he does. And Mark gives it to us without any sort of fanfare, just like the rest of Jesus' miracles. There's no straining, no effort on Jesus' part, no secret formulas. He's the God of creation, and creation obeys its master. Mark gives us a a very important detail in verse 48. Look at it with me. About the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Here's the detail. He was about to pass them by. Now, what does Mark mean that Jesus was about to pass by them? There are several options to choose from, and one I think is best. It could be one that maybe Jesus intends to beat them to the other side and then surprise them, right? They, they row up in the morning, and Jesus goes, ha, ha, beat you. That could be an option. Without the flippancy, maybe Jesus wants to get to the other side and prove something. It could be. Another option that's been suggested is maybe it's just a bad translation. Maybe it should read, he was about to pass by them. Maybe that's what the storytellers intended, but that seems unlikely. Another option is that maybe the disciples have a mistaken impression. Maybe it seemed like Jesus was about to pass by and to keep on trucking, but Jesus the whole time intended to come to them to give them some aid. I think all of those fall short. Here's an option that I think really works well. There's a better understanding of this phrase, pass by, that comes from the Old Testament and an understanding of the word theophany. Theophany, it it means this. A theophany is an appearance or manifestation of God himself. What happens, the disciples in that boat and Jesus walking on the water on this night is a theophany. It is a revelation of God himself to the disciples. This language is found in the Old Testament in places like Exodus chapter 33. Moses said to God, now show me your glory. And God said to Moses, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you can stand in a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. That's theophany language. The glory of God is going to pass by Moses. Same language is used in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. Elijah is in a cave having a fit. This guy is in bad shape. God comes to him, and the Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. So just as God passed by Moses at Mount Sinai, and just as God passed by Elijah on Mount Horeb, now that same God, who is Jesus, wants to pass by his disciples, so that they might see his glory and believe. Only God can walk on water. Not some magician, not some trickster, not God light or the man who became God. Only God can walk on water. 
Jesus is showing his disciples beyond question that this is who he is. He is God with them. How do the disciples respond? They respond with sheer terror. They thought he was a ghost. We'll get into that in just a moment. But what does Jesus say to his terrified disciples in this moment? He says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. So Jesus tells them to take courage. He tries to reassure them there's nothing to fear. And then he says this line, it is I. It is another hotly debated phrase from the mouth of Jesus. You've got two large camps when it comes to making sense of this simple sentence, just two words in Greek, it is I. One group says this is just Jesus identifying himself. And there's truth in that, regardless of which camp you choose here. Jesus is identifying himself. Don't be afraid, it's me. I'm not a ghost, not an evil spirit, it's Jesus. So that's true in the least. But another group would say this is more than just language of identification. This is also language of theophany. Jesus effectively identifies himself as I am. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. Now, Mark doesn't make a big deal out of it. He doesn't draw direct connections to God's uh, burning bush conversation with Moses or or anything else. Um, But it seems fitting to me that Jesus walks in God's place and then he speaks God's words because that's who he is. And then what does Jesus do? Climbs in the boat takes a seat, the wind dies down. What a painfully normal thing to do. Walk on the water, take a seat. Jesus spoke to the disciples from outside the boat and he revealed his divinity. Then he climbs in the boat, has a seat, and he shows his humanity. So in this moment, we're confronted with the fundamental question that every one of us has to answer this morning. It's the question that comes to every person who hears this story and knows the name of Jesus. In the hearing of this story, Jesus passes by you just as he does the disciples. And he does so in order that you might see his glory and believe. There's the question, do you believe? Do you see God here? Do you believe in the one who created the waters? The one who in Egypt turned the water of the Nile into blood? The one who parted the waters of the Red Sea? The one who gave Israel water in the wilderness from a rock? The one who parted the waters of the Jordan River? Do you believe in the one whose holy fire lapped up the water-drenched sacrifice on Elijah's altar? Do you believe in the one who had a wedding in a town called Gana, turned water into wine? The one who in Mark 4 silenced the wind and the waves? The one who in Mark 6 turns water into a sidewalk? The one who went to the cross in your place? The sinless Son of God died in your place for your sins, and when they pierced his side with a spear to make sure he was dead, water poured out. And then three days later, he rose from the dead and he promises forgiveness and eternal life to everyone who calls on his name, everyone who trusts in him and believes in him. 
Every miracle of Jesus has the same message, that Jesus is God in the flesh, the one in whom we must place our faith. Salvation runs through him. Walking on water is a lighter evidence of a greater message and the greater sign that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. He's revealing his glory to us this morning as we see him walk on this water. So our hard days are not reasons for us to reject him. Those are the days where we meet him, where we hear his voice, we see his glory, and he reassures us that he is present and in control. We must trust him. Jesus is God who is the object of our faith. There's another way Jesus helps us in our struggling faith in this passage. If you're taking notes, second, Jesus is gracious when our hearts are hard. Jesus is gracious when our hearts are hard. So let's turn our attention now to the disciples in this scene. So you remember at the beginning, Jesus places them in the boat, sends them on a course towards a town called Bethsaida. They're not making progress because of the wind. Uh, It's exhausting. It's frustrating. Jesus sees them struggling, and then he walks out to them on the lake. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Not like a Casper the friendly ghost. This is a very superstitious people. They're thinking this is an evil spirit that's come to devour us. They think death is imminent. So they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. How would you react if you had been in the boat that night with the disciples? If you think you would be the lone voice of reason and excitement, you are out of your mind. Not one of us would say, is that, is that guy paddle boarding in the middle of the night? But he doesn't have a paddle? It must be an electric paddle board? Wait, no, he's walking and it's Jesus. Oh, it's Jesus, this is great. Hey guys, Jesus is here, this is good news. Not one of us would have done that. We find ourselves in the fear of the disciples in this story. Theophanies, appearances of God, his revelation of himself evokes awe, fear, when we are suddenly aware of who he is and who we are. Remember Pete's sermon last week from Isaiah chapter 6. The fear of the disciples in Mark 6 is different than Isaiah's, but still it's an appropriate response and I think the natural response to those on the other side of holiness. So Jesus climbs in the boat and he takes a seat. And look at what Mark says about the disciples at the end of verse 51. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. This is one of the rare places in Mark's gospel where he references back to a previous episode. They hadn't understood about the loaves. There's something about that hillside miracle, that feeding miracle, that ought to inform their experience in this whole scene, but it doesn't because they didn't understand about the bread. Their hearts were hardened. What was there to understand about the bread, about those loaves that might have helped them in this situation? Well, when Jesus fed all those people in that remote place, remember what he's saying about himself. He shows himself to be the victorious messianic king who hosts the great and final banquet. He has put down all the enemies, all the threats against God's people and God's kingdom, 
And now he secures them for all eternity. That hillside miracle is a small foretaste of that great final salvation. So the disciples should have walked off of that hillside and climbed into that boat knowing that God is at work in Jesus to accomplish his saving purpose. They couldn't have understood about the cross or about the resurrection. They couldn't have made sense of those things at this point. But at the very least, they could have said, God is here. He is working salvation. But they didn't. They saw the miracle. They gathered the leftovers. You remember how many baskets full of leftovers they took up? Twelve. So every one of these Joes had a basket of leftovers to serve as a testament, a, a witness to the power of Jesus Christ and the identity of Jesus Christ. They each were belly to basket with this miracle evidence, and they didn't get it. What's the disciples' biggest problem in this story? It's not the wind. And it's not that they're ineffective rowers. They are endangered because of their hard hearts, their failure to believe. We find ourselves in the disciples' fear. We also find ourselves in their failure to believe. What does it mean to have a hard heart? This is poetic language that's used throughout Scripture, front to back. It's a common figure of speech. In the book of Exodus, we have a grand example of a person with a hard heart in Pharaoh who refuses to let Israel free from their bondage. And in that story, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then at other points in that story, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. The prophet Zechariah Chapter 7, verse 12, he, he said that Israel had a hard heart because they stopped listening to the word of the Lord. So this condition comes from Pharaoh not hearing and obeying or believing the word of the Lord through Moses, Israel not receiving or hearing the word of the Lord through his servants. They turned their back, they closed their ears. And there's real consequences for hardness of heart. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, it tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar had a hard heart and therefore he rejected God. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of Gentiles who've hardened their hearts against God and as a result, they live in every kind of impurity. So here's what we can say about hardness of heart. It's, it's a spiritual condition. It's a deafness to the words of God. It's a deafness to the call of God. I know people whose hearts are hardened against God because of unchecked sin in their lives. And I also know people who have hard hearts as a result of hurts they have suffered or are suffering. So it can be a complicated matter for sure. But a hard heart is a real condition that affects believers and non-believers alike. But here's the good news. It's a condition with a cure. We're not meant to be left with these hard hearts. What does Jesus do with his hard-hearted disciples in this story? He climbs in the boat, and the wind stops, and he doesn't kick them out of the boat. He gives them safe passage to the shore. Do you see the grace of Jesus in this moment? They're terrified. When they recognize Jesus coming on the water, they ought to respond in faith. In some form, they ought to respond in faith. Instead, they respond in terror and unbelief. Jesus speaks comfort. 
Jesus sits with them. Jesus gives them safe passage. He pours out grace on these hard-hearted disciples. Walking on water is a miracle. But God's love for sinners is also a miracle. He's with these guys all the way, and he doesn't give up on them. So if you find yourself to be hard-hearted today, take courage. Don't be afraid. Jesus comes to you with abundant grace. He doesn't give up on you. Time and again, he calls out to you. He asks you to turn from your sin, to turn back to him. He calls you to trust him for your salvation. He calls you to trust him in the situation. John Stott said that grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. And Isn't that what Jesus is doing in this story with his disciples? And Isn't that what Jesus has done with us? He comes, he stoops, he rescues. Jesus is gracious to hard-hearted disciples. There's one more way Jesus helps us in our struggling faith in this story. He's the focus of our faith. He's full of grace for our hard hearts. Third, finally, Jesus is compassionate when our faith is immature. Jesus is compassionate when our faith is immature. So Jesus had set the disciples in the boat on a course for a town called Bethsaida. They wound up in a town called Gennesaret. Uh, If you were to look at the map in the back of your Bible, you'll find that Jesus is right back in the area of his greatest popularity on the Sea of Galilee. As soon as they get out of the boat, he's recognized and the crowd goes wild. They bring sick people from all over, drag them on mats. They put the sick in marketplaces because they think this is the most likely place for Jesus to go. He's not just going to hang out in the alleyways. He's going to go where the people are. So they want to get the sick in the line, in the path of Jesus. And this happens in every village Jesus goes to. This is not just a Gennesaret scene. This is a a many different village scene here at the end of chapter 6. And we're told that when people touch the edge of his cloak, just barely touch the edge of his cloak, that everyone who did that even, even they were healed. And doesn't it remind you of the sick woman from chapter 5, the woman who had been sick for many years, had found no relief, and this sweet woman pressed through a crowd, sneakily touched the edge of Jesus' cloak and was healed. And then Jesus had an exchange with her. Who touched me? Power went out from me. It's this woman. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. If you're with us on that Sunday, we talked about this woman's faith being a bit muddy. On the one hand, she's to be commended because she believes Jesus can heal her and she presses through this crowd to get access to Jesus But then there's a a little bit of sense of superstition, of magic associated with her faith, that if I can just touch the magic cloth, then I'll be made well. But Jesus doesn't wear magic clothes. There's nothing magic about his robe or his cloak or his sandals or anything else. The power is Jesus himself. And this woman's faith, Jesus tells her, it's your faith. Not my garments. It's the grasp of your hand, not the the grasp of your faith, not the grasp of your hand that did the healing here. So we have that same type of scene here at the end of chapter six. These people, again, coming to Jesus, pressing him because they believe he can heal. He's the miracle worker. And they get credit. They should receive credit for that. But also realize that their understanding of Jesus is stunted. It's an immature faith. 
they have this sense of superstition about them. If we just touch him, then we'll be well. They don't understand who he is as Messiah in his wholeness. They don't understand the cross yet or the resurrection. Their faith in him is immature. But Mark doesn't hold them accountable for that. Jesus doesn't hold them accountable for that in this text. Jesus, out of his abundant compassion for sick and hurting people who are like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus heals over and over and over again. This little episode here is a depiction of his tremendous power and compassion to heal those who have even immature faith. I have to think also that there's a benefit for the disciples to see this also. The disciples didn't recognize Jesus on the water, but all these people recognized Jesus on the shore. The disciples' faith is stunted and broken. These people, even with an immature faith, know that Jesus has something, has life, has healing to give. I envision the disciples walking mopily behind Jesus as all these people just flock to him. And out of his compassion and love, he heals over and over and over again. So what does immature faith look like in our modern culture? Well, I think surprisingly it looks a lot like what this does in the end of Mark chapter 6. In a word, it could be called cultural Christianity. What I mean by that type of Christianity, cultural Christianity, it's a Christianity that operates with a base knowledge of Jesus and a fair amount of superstition, but lives practically like an atheist or an agnostic. Cultural Christianity thinks that religious ceremony and morality pave the way to God's favor. And so we live in this perpetual guilt under the angry eye of a disapproving God. And in order to appease him, him, uh, we have to give him church activity, church ceremony, sacraments, morality. We have to give him these things in order to get him to be favorable to us. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. If you think God loves you more because you showed up today, you have such a broken view of the love of God. Or you think God loves you more because you were baptized as a baby. Or you were baptized as an adult. You have such a deficient view of the love of God. See, the bad news is this. We're rotten. The good news is this. Jesus loves you in your rottenness. He died to remove that rottenness. When we trust him fully for our salvation, he replaces that rottenness with righteousness. That's the compassion, the love of Jesus at work. Everyone that comes to him, broken, hurting, weak, frail, messed up, everyone that comes to Jesus, trusts in him, is made whole and given eternal life. Jesus is remarkable here in chapter 6 in all the compassion he shows to people who are hurting. Not just chapter 6, going back to chapter 5. I've just been in awe time and again at the gentleness of Jesus with the woman who was sick or the, the little girl that he raised from the dead. You remember those scenes of his compassion and gentleness. He's gracious even to unbelieving Nazareth. He shows compassion for people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And now he makes himself available to heal everyone who comes to him. 
over and over again, this incredible divine love and compassion poured out on broken people with limited understanding. Many times in the past, it's been the way of the church to speak out about what we are opposed to. And to be sure, there are definitely times that our message needs to be that we are against this thing. But let's be sure to also follow the tactics of Jesus who showed divine compassion to disciples who didn't believe him and crowds who didn't understand him. I think there's room for an apologetic of compassion when we come to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Truth and compassion are necessary partners in our gospel work. And so Jesus is compassionate to us in our immature faith, our broken faith. If you've been walking with him, so to speak, in superstition, then you can be set free today from that nonsense. Nonsense, because you are loved by him. He died for you while you were still a sinner, and he comes to give you life evermore. So this scene, Jesus walking on the water and Jesus healing all these people, speaks to disciples with struggling faith. It calls us to trust Jesus completely. He's the object of our faith, right? It shows us his graciousness to hard-hearted disciples. And it also shows us his compassion to people who have immature faith. He calls us to a deeper life. I remember a while back uh, reading a chapter from a Max Lucado book. And he imagined what a journal entry from this night would have sounded like from one of the disciples. Just an exercise in imagination, not on par with the Bible, but engaging the way we think about our interaction with this. So here's his imagined journal entry from one of the disciples that were in the boat that night. I'd never seen Jesus as I saw him then. I'd seen him as powerful. I'd seen him as wise. I'd witnessed his authority and marveled at his abilities But what I witnessed last night, I know I'll never forget. I saw God. The God who can't sit still when the storm is too strong. The God who lets me get frightened enough to need him and then comes close enough for me to see him. I saw God and I'll never be the same. On that night, as Jesus approached that boat, he told his disciples, take courage. And it was just a couple of years later that Peter and John In the boat that night, they stunned the Jewish Supreme Court with their courage. They had been commanded after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, they had been commanded by the Jewish Supreme Court to stop preaching the name of Jesus. And they replied by saying, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. If you will trust Jesus, you will never be the same. So are you ready to be done with cultural Christianity? It's time to be a cardiac Christian, a Christian to the core, a follower of Jesus through and through. He calls you today to leave behind superstition and all that sort of self-reliance, and he calls you to trust in him completely. He's done the work of salvation. It is to you to receive it and rest in it. Are you a disciple with a hard heart? This is a day for a fresh start. His glory passes by in this passage and he calls us to faith again, to trust again, to spiritual renewal. Do not let your hard-heartedness advance another day, another moment. When Jesus promises new hope, 
a new life, a new way, this is the day to come back to Jesus and be renewed in his grace. Do not let this moment pass you by. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I'm going to pray to close. We're going to do something a little different, if you'll just bear with me. I want to, I want to encourage you to pray on your own. And I also want to pray for you not because I have magic prayers or my prayers get to heaven quicker than yours or God listens to mine better than he does to yours. That's not the case at all. But I'm, I'm your pastor and I love you and sometimes it's good to know that we've got someone else praying for us and with us. And so with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm just gonna ask for a simple show of hands. If you'd like prayer this morning, you'd say, Cody, I've got a, a hard heart that I'm wrestling with. Or you'd say, Cody, um, uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm so confused and lost in, in sort of a superstitious Christianity. Um, or you'd say, I mean, I just, I'm facing a situation, sin or a crisis, where I'm having a real hard time engaging my faith. If you've got something like that going on this morning, would you just slip a hand up? I'm not going to make you come up. All I'm going to do is just pray for my brothers and sisters who slip up a hand. And Father, you know every name. And Lord, in this room are your precious children. You know every hair on their head. You know every step they take. You know the fear they brought in with them this morning. They've tried to cover it up with their church clothes. God, you know the struggles they're facing in sin and temptation. And the one thing we know to be true in the midst of all of our brokenness and shortcoming is that you are God and you love your children. You are our shepherd. You are the one who comes to us and quiets our fear. You're the one that comes with healing in your wings. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have just acknowledged this morning that they're in a time of difficulty. They need your help. They don't need my prayer. They need your help. Father God, would you... Be gentle with them. Would you open eyes of faith that they would see this revelation appropriately? Would you give strength to my sister, my brother, who are struggling with sin and temptation? Fortify them in their fight against the enemy. Would you give hope and endurance to my brother and sister who are facing crisis today? Let them find you in that storm. That you'd be their peace and their comfort. God, I ask that you would let us be a people, help us to be a people that walk with you with soft hearts, tender to you, ears listening, lives in obedience. Thank you for your grace poured out to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for so great a salvation as this. Lord, we put our lives in your hands that your name would be glorified and this world would hear of your great love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.